Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 39th episode with me, Niklas Berl-Lundblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, Richard, we've done a couple of these craft episodes where we talk about how policy teams work with other teams. We did one that uh, was about how policy teams work with comms, and we've talked a little bit about leadership and policy. And one of the things that is curiously absent from our discussion so far is this question of how policy interrelates with what I think you could say is one of the closest groups with comms, and that is the legal group. Now, legal groups are super important in most companies, and they work really closely with policy. What can you say about... You know, how typically do policy and legal teams interact? Yeah, I mean, in some cases, legal and policy are so close that policy sits within legal. I'm, I'm actually not aware of any organization where legal sits within policy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> policy within legal is quite quite a common configuration. And and you're right, this is a super important um, set of relationships. As a sort of headline, I'll, I'll jump straight in and say, I, I think there are some really important differences that can best be summarized by, you know, um, legal essentially trade in facts while policy people trade in opinions. And so we're sort of coming, we're often dealing with the same issues, but coming from a very different perspective. Um, maybe helpful to start just to think about what a, what a legal team looks like in tech mm. companies, which we're mainly focused on. And there will there will normally be a general counsel uh, who is the top lawyer and will normally be a very senior person, may sit on the board of the company and, and certainly be in the you know top management team. As I say, the policy people may report up to that general counsel or they may report separately to, to the uh, CEO and to the board. But general counsel, I don't know, any again, any company where they don't have a general counsel who's kind of board level CEO direct report because of the importance of that role. And then off of that general counsel, there'll be a bunch of different legal specialists. Uh, again, we can tease out why that structure is a bit different from policy, but in, in some cases, they will be geographical, uh, as policy people often are, because you need, may need people to cover particular countries of the world. Um, but in most cases, actually, they, they tend to be organized along functional lines. So you've got a group that deals with, I don't know, intellectual property and licensing stuff. You've got a group that deals with content liability. You've got a group that deals with antitrust and so on. So general counsel and then a bunch of different functional legal specialists sort of hanging off of that general counsel is the normal structure. Um, and then policy will actually be quite differently organized, which is one of the first things we need to think about. Yeah, I, and I think it's worthwhile ex sort of really expanding on on the question of what does a legal department actually do and what different sub departments does it uh, contain. And so you mentioned you mentioned this notion of IP antitrust, but I think it's also interesting to think about the the other the other sub divisions that we have here. So one is litigation. Yes. There will usually be lawyers who are focused uh, only on litigation really important people to to know because they can tell you where the litigation trends are heading. Um, you will have some people who focus only on commercial contracts. Now, a common mistake, I think, uh, interesting to see if you agree, is, is that very often it's felt that commercial contracts is far away from policy. But in reality, the contractual terms that you use is what in the long term generates friends or enemies. Because depending on how hard and tough and successful you are in your commercial negotiations, people will seek other means of getting ahead or getting an edge on next negotiation, and that will then spill over into policy. I think that's right, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you're right. One of the things about, I, I think, uh, again, a sort of distinction is a real generalisms, but I think they, they hold true to a large degree, is that lawyers tend to be deep specialists in a particular area. 
and you typically wouldn't ask your commercial contracts lawyer to deal with your <laughs> privacy regulation or your you know your uh, intellectual property uh, questions that they're, they're in deep specialism whereas policy people tend to be generalists and, and feel they can sort of pick up and run with anything so there's this really important distinction um and then you're absolutely right again that it is really easy sometimes to say look there are some things which are very obviously related to policy so something like content policy uh, content law you know are you are you taking down or leaving up a particular piece of content there'll be a policy view on it and there will be a lawyer somewhere who will be able to give you advice and say look this is legal or illegal in a particular country um but we often then focus very much on that and then don't pay attention to things like contracts law and litigation both of which from a reputational point of view can be absolutely critical so when when you write your terms of service you know that that um can either be something that's sort of welcomed or something that causes major concern and quite often any change actually to the terms of service of a company however benign will end up causing sort of huge ripples that will then get picked up by the policy people and that will be driven by the legal team the legal team are the ones who define the terms of service mm-hmm. and i said in their overall mission that you know the job of a legal team it's a sort of self-answering, but it's to make sure that what the company does is legal, <laughs> which is so simple, but it's sort of protect, to protect the company in a very deep way. Their, their job is to make sure that the company doesn't trip up by doing things that are illegal and then end up in all kinds of trouble. And it's a really, really serious discipline. I have huge respect for them because oh, you know, ultimately they're, they're often they're literally officers of the court. They do things and they get it wrong and you know there's all kinds of liability that kicks in as a matter of legal fact if if uh, somebody from the legal team sort of goes into court and says something wrong you know that's a criminal offense uh, um if i can put it sort of you know perhaps less politely you know policy people and politicians kind of bullshit all the time and they do that <laughs> in their space and they can you know this is how we do and you know outside that legal framework you can get away with that it's the, the expectation is that people do that when you're in this legal framework like this stuff is really serious and really important can't afford to get it wrong so they're in that you know very very strongly defensive position saying our job or or flip it around the other way you know the failure of a legal department would be that a company does something illegal does something wrong and the legal department didn't give them the advice uh, to avoid that you know assuming they want mm-hmm. to avoid it so uh, let me rattle off a few different sub-departments, and then we can go through them and talk a little bit about the relationship with each of them, I think. So we talked about litigation, really important. We talked about commercial. I think we should be really clear that the department uh, that deals with law enforcement access requests is a super important party uh, partner for us. Um, and then we have the IP people you mentioned, the antitrust people. Uh, we have the, the folks who are dealing with employment law, increasingly yes. important today with activists, employers, employer um, employees sorry <laughs> and, and others and then there is this other team that i think is is more or less unique to to uh, tech companies it's super interesting to think about and that's the product council yes um and so i think what let's start with litigation and sort of go back to what are some things that we should think about as policy people when we interact with litigators i'll i'll start you off with one and then see how you react the one that that i discovered far too late was really important to how a company is perceived is the one uh, about how litigation 
litigation looks at jurisdiction. Yes. Um, so every time you're dragged in front of a court, you're asked, do you think that this court is actually you know, competent to uh, adjudicate your case? Is this a court that has jurisdiction over your case? And the instinct and reaction and probably the right risk analysis from a purely legal perspective is to say no in a majority of cases and say we're not present in this country as pertains to this particular issue that's before the court, which means that a lot of the litigation um, communication that I've seen across the board from every tech company has always started with, we're not in your country, which is a uniquely sort of, from a policy perspective, risky message to go tell someone because increasingly judges who are influential and often in political circles and others will go like, it's really curious that they say they're not here because I see them and our, yes. <laughs> all of our citizens seem to use their services. And, and every time they turn up, they say they're not here. That doesn't really sit right with me. And so you end up in this huge policy discussion, which is jurisdiction. So, so that's one I th mm. think is that's really important to get. Yeah, right. yeah, completely agree. And again, the litigator's job is is essentially to sort of raise as many defensive barriers as possible. So, someone someone is, is sometimes this is defensive litigation. They'll be offensive as well sometimes, as we see at the moment. Um, this week, at Apple are suing this Israeli company uh, um, NSO because of allegations that they've been hacking into Apple's phones and WhatsApp been suing already. So, litigation does go both ways. It's sometimes offensive litigation, but more often than not, we're talking about defensive litigation. Someone is suing one of the tech companies. And I say the litigator's job then is to put up as much potential barrier, as many potential barriers as possible, knowing that some of them are going to get knocked down. <laughs> but the more you've got, the more chance you have at the end of it of, of, of getting a good result uh, and perhaps making the other side settle or go away, uh, which is part of the strategy not to get to court at all. And so barrier number one is, yes, you know, from a technical legal point of view, we are contesting whether or not the court, this this court, this legal process in a particular country is applicable for us, whether or not we're caught within it. And you can frame that in different ways. I, I had exactly the same argument sometimes with my lawyers. Like, you, you know, in the letter, the letter can kind of say in paragraph one, you know, uh, uh, we're not in your country. You have no jurisdiction over you, you know, over us. Uh, sort of get lost. <laughs> and it can say <laughs> almost in those terms. And, and from a, lo a lawyer's point of view, they would write it in those terms and they would say, look, it's not personal. You know, it's just, we're just, we're trading in facts. It's just a legal fact that this is not, not the case. And as a policy person, you'll come along and say to your uh, legal colleague, can we just change that language? Can we instead say, we recognize how important our service is to the people of country X, and that these issues are really, really important, notwithstanding, uh, um, you know, the, the, the fact that this is really important, we do have to advise the court humbly, that we do think <laughs> as a matter of law, we may technically not be within your jurisdiction, you may not be the people, to, so you just, it's all about the sort of tone and messaging. Um, but yeah, the first barrier, and that's the most robust is, look, you have no power to decide this uh, yeah. is a really robust barrier and any litigator worth their salt is going to try and put that barrier up whether or not they'll succeed uh, will depend but i certainly saw you know plenty of cases where uh, um you know facebook that was an effective barrier because the judge did look at it and say look as a matter of fact you know whilst they've got users in our country and people in our country the activity that is being sued over uh, is not taking place within my country, and it wouldn't be right for me to take it to the court here. So it's, it's a valid barrier to raise, but again, how you do it, 
and tone. Uh, from a, a lawyer's point of view, it's often dry and factual. And from a policy point of view, there's there's some spin on there. Um, the challenge being, obviously, when your dry factual letter gets put in the public domain, it can make you look terrible, even though it may be accurate and correct. Yeah. And there there are risks that exist the other way as well, because one of the other things that I think is sort of a bit of a third rail and really difficult to do and really difficult to do right is to do policy work around ongoing litigation. So say that you're, for example, litigating with party X um, and you know that there are a lot of people who are going to be called in as witnesses, for example, your, your temptation there will be to go like, well, let's explain our case to them. Let's tell them how things really are, etc. But that's like a, a very very, very dangerous area for a policy professional, isn't it? Yeah, it, it can be delicate. I mean, there are some cases where, you know, it's absolutely sort of squarely in a, a legal process and actually any any kind of intervention potentially risks being in contempt of court or transgressing all kinds of rules. But, but actually there is another class of cases which involve litigation where you're dealing with a regulator. And those, those actually can be quite different where, for example, a privacy regulator has raised an issue with you and they are both taking you to court and asking you to come in and hold a series of conversations with them at the same time. These are kind of really curious processes, but not un, untypical of the work that you do. So they're, they're going to court, but they may be thinking, look, it's a two or three year process to go through this and it's expensive. And whilst we're, we're raising the big stick of a court case, what we really want is you to come in and talk to us and fix the thing. Um, and you may be keen to fix it. So you, you say you often have this this parallel process. In fact, in, in some regulators, often the privacy regulators, they actually have separate teams. They'll have a legal team that's taking the case. And then they'll have another team that will want to talk to you. And if at some point you've managed to answer their concerns, they'll tell the legal team to back down uh, and they'll, they'll sort of withdraw their court case. So I say... You need to understand which of those scenarios you're in. Is it one in which you're having a parallel conversation uh, under the threat of a court case, or is it one where you know you're in a, a classic, say, typically like a criminal type court case where you have to tread extremely carefully? Right, and and uh, and of course, then there is the case where if you're in the U.S., uh, you want to generate a lot of amicus briefs, uh, sort of friends of the court writing to the court saying, "Here's what we think." And in that case, again, you factor in policy fully because police policy is often responsible for reaching out to organizations, experts, sometimes academics and others who who will write on behalf of the petitioner, the sort of the company and say that we believe that their analysis is correct or here's a point that's really undervalued or here's something that we really need to take into account. That work of generating sort of the, within the legal process uh, still remains very important. It does. And, and um, again, this is where it gets sometimes feel unfair. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think what the Latin word is for enemy. If you could, is it hostes? I'm trying to think, uh, uh, because there's the other kind of brief. There's, there's the amicus brief. But actually the other thing that happens often is you're in a court case and particularly in the policy world, policymakers and others will happily queue up to say how pleased they are that you're being taken to court because clearly you're <laughs> guilty as hell of the thing that you've done and it was about time someone did it. So so you're right, in some ways, in, in you know, there's the technical thing of the amicus brief, but there's also often um, what we call an air war going on where people are uh, pining one way or the other on whether or not 
you know, you've done the bad thing that is the subject of the the case that's ongoing. And I say it's, it's curious, and again, politicians, of course, have got a right to speak out on issues of public interest, but they will not hold back when they think that's going on. And, and sometimes, I mean, I have a conversation with lawyers saying, look, look, these people are out of line. You policy people, can you get the politicians to shut up and stop commenting? This is a legal case. Yes. And you're like, yeah, all right. No, not really. <laughs> Sorry, but no. And, and you yeah. know what? If I write the email to the politician saying, would you please shut up because uh, there's an ongoing court case you know what's going to happen the next day that email is going to be in the public domain yeah. <laughs> there's going to be a whole other news cycle of you know company tries to gag politician for defending their, their uh, constituents which nicely brings us to another fact that we have to take into account when we talk about collaborating with the litigation team and that is the question of discovery Yes, uh, the question Ooh. of discovery generally is so important, and having an understanding for what is actually being um, set out in discovery is also incredibly important. Talk a little bit about how discovery works and why it's a big deal for policy. Yeah, and and again, this is particularly sort of reflects the American legal system. I mean, it's there in other legal systems, but it's especially acute in American legal systems that essentially once the court case begins, you know, there's a, a often a, a, a right for the litigants to demand quite broad ranges of documentation from the involved companies. And you can contest it and go backwards and forwards, but assume generally a broad range of documents will go out. And it's actually quite scary when you work in the companies, I'm sure you have this, of you get these legal hold messages. And so some court cases kicked off and you get an email saying, you know, any any emails that you have mentioning whatever it is, cookies, if it was the court case around cookies, you must not destroy because we may be required to and, and, uh, disclose them. And not just emails, but any notes you may have or oh, notebooks yes. or jottings in the, you know, the margins of your daily newspaper, everything. The discovery hold encompasses a really broad set of, of different kinds of writings. And I, yeah, I think I was at some point under 22 different litigation holds. They're all gone yeah. now, so I can say that, but it was, it was quite fascinating. Yeah, um, and, and again, the legal team take this really seriously, and particularly American lawyers. And and again, just from a pure policy point of view, this almost when you're working politics, this feels naive. I mean, you know, so you're going to collect all our documents and give them to the enemy. I mean, in politics, you would never ever do anything like that. You just a horse stuff, but it's a really important part of the legal process. And the lawyers, absolutely correctly, you know, in good faith, will go through with it. Sadly, and we certainly had this experience at Facebook, having, you know, played the game properly, we had a litigant on the other side who who then just disclosed all of this information that they'd received through discovery completely illegally, you know, weren't allowed to do that. And they just went ahead and did it. And then there's very little you can do. So it's, a, it's a, in a sense, a, a sort of another uh, potential route to damage a company is that you've disclosed stuff through litigation. Your lawyers have said correctly, we, we have to do this. We have to assume good faith. We have to assume the legal process will work. But the other party in the litigation has, however they've done it, confected some way to put that material into the public domain, uh, thereby sort of well, quite intentionally, I think, in many cases, causing you um, uh, damage and, and concern. In fact, arguably, you know, as a, a, if somebody wants to get stuff out of a company, one of the ways they do that is threaten litigation that would require discovery of, of sensitive material uh, and then hope that the company will settle to make you go away uh, rather than go through the whole discovery process. And that is an important part of the, this calculation that companies have to make about whether to settle in litigation or, you know, so in some cases it can, it can just keep going. You, you provide a whole bunch of documents, 
the litigant finds something in them, they come back again, they convince the court, they have a right to get more documents, and they keep mining your documents over time. Um, and again, you need to decide at what point do you call a halt to that, or do you continue to hold material and provide it to them? And as a policy person, you're deeply grateful to the litigation folks who are running the internal uh, trainings on this stuff, telling people that you should expect that your email is actually going to turn up at some point at the front page of the New York Times. And we've seen exactly this happen from, you know, I think every single court case that in most tech companies has some degree of this. It's even a Twitter account that that is that is um, uh, tech company emails in discovery or something like that, where they're sort of sampling these public documents and putting them out there. And, and and I think most people, when they use their email, do not think about the fact that what they're saying can be construed as anti-competitive behavior or, you know, in some way discriminatory against some group because they're writing, they just think they're writing a daily communication. So it's it's one of those things where you can really get help from the litigation folks because they can help tell everyone in the company how to think actively about corporate communications and how corporate communications are massively different from your own private communications. Now, there's 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 another aspect of of this that I think is is interesting, and that is that it's not just the US that does a lot of this discovery. If you grow big enough to to attract the kind attention of the European Commission, um, you're also going to find that in competition cases and antitrust cases, there's a lot of discovery. And the rules of privilege, essentially the rules that decide what is actually handed out, are very different in a European context, much more um, permissive, I would argue, in a European context than they are in the US context. So a lot of things to think through that certainly a team you want to be close to if you're a policy professional and you want to have an understanding of all of these different aspects of how you can collaborate with them. And let's move on to, to another team that, that perhaps sounds a little bit, you know, at the outside of, of what a policy person could care about, but turns out to be really important. They are the employment lawyers. Talk yes. a little bit about them. So um, again, for an international or global company, navigating all the different um, forms of employment law around the world is a major job. And actually, again, for policy teams, particularly acute, and, and you and I both built policy teams, and what you're often doing is hiring one or two people in very many countries. And so you're, you know, you're in a sense, that's the worst kind of scenario in a sense from being able to give legal advice. Legal advice is great. If you hire a thousand people in one country, we can figure out what the right things are about making sure that you do everything correctly. Uh, again, there's there's nothing more embarrassing than, you know, getting your employment law wrong and ending up uh, breaking the law. And particularly if you're in the policy world. So the last thing you want to do is hire people and then find that the way you've hired them, the way you've set the contracts up are all wrong. There's lots of different uh, sort of legal regimes that need to be um, adhered to. So, for example, uh, France is an example that's often cited. France has very particular rules around working hours and making sure that you're compliant with them. If you're a manager of somebody working in France, there's a series of different obligations that, that uh, are imposed on you uh, in order to meet these requirements. There's perfectly legitimate sort of social goals of the French government has been to put them in place. And again, there'll be other parallel regimes in other countries where very specific obligations. So in the general sense, making sure you're not employing people illegally or inadvertently sort of breaking any of those very specific requirements is crucial. Um, And then there's another aspect which I think has sort of come along more recently, which is there's now quite a lot of uh, legal issues. There are quite a lot of legal issues related to discrimination in the workplace. And that can be, you know, everything from 
making sure that your interviewing processes are correct and that you've uh, made sure that you're not interviewing in a discriminatory way through to specific disclosures that have to be made in some countries. Uh, for example, around the makeup of your workforce, uh, uh, what groups are represented within the workforce, what the average salary is for different types of people within that workforce and so on. So there's a whole other range of uh, law related to anti-discrimination, which again, if you get that wrong, is really problematic. And actually, even if you get it right, if you comply with it, still can raise a lot of questions that come back to the policy team. So for example, if you find that your company's profile uh, is is particularly sort of skewed in terms of gender, say, and pay, then that's going to be something that policymakers are going to be asking you about. Why are typically men in your company being paid more than women would be something that might come up now um, because through employment law, you're required to disclose the information that allows people quite properly to see that sort of breakdown. And even in the case of a termination of an employee and where there is like questions around activism or questions around uh, leaking, all of those different things also have the way those are done uh, will ultimately also end up aggregated, not individual cases necessarily, but aggregated as a part of of the general reputation that a company has. Right. That's right. Yeah. And and then there are some aspects around that that. Again, we're in this fall into this bucket where, from a legal point of view, they're entirely correct, and the lawyers are doing their job right, protecting the company, but perception-wise, they don't look great. And the one that's come up a lot recently have been um, these so-called sort of gagging orders, that there are clauses in contracts that say, if you've gone to arbitration, say there's been a case of allegation of sexual harassment, and the employee has gone through a process of arbitration. Uh, um, uh, subsequent to that, they've effectively signed an agreement that says they're not allowed ever to go public on the fact that sexual harassment occurred. And people, again, are quite rightly said, look, that's that's overbearing, that's inappropriate, you shouldn't demand that of people. Say so, uh, The lawyers have put that in where it's legally allowed because it's the best way of protecting the company uh, and they feel it's still fair to the individual. They're not against the individual complainant, but they think there's a sort of reasonable balance there that's set up in in whatever the national legal code is. But from a public perception point of view, particularly in this day and age, it looks awful, doesn't it, to, to have something in a contract that says somebody who's a victim of sexual harassment you know, is, no, is never allowed to speak about the fact that it occurred. And and then to sort of cap it off, there is really the question also of who gets to be employed and who's a contractor, a question that seems to be also growing in importance. And and where and this is, I mean, it comes very close to something that we discussed before, content moderation, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, the content moderators in, in large part are actually employees from most of the big companies, employees of other companies that then offer their services uh, to the large tech companies. I mean, I think those structures actually are relatively straightforward because, you know, those large service providers will be providing similar um, sort of back office services to lots of other companies. So I think that's quite legitimate. And and the employees who are maybe working doing content moderation for company A uh, will transfer and do moderation for company B if the services company wins those contracts. So those are relatively straightforward. I think where it's much more contentious is where somebody – looks and feels like a regular employee because they're coming on site every day they're doing a job you know in the same place every day only ever working for one company um and there again the law varies from country to country but certainly the uk is 
is is um, pretty robust on what they call disguised employment. That somebody, you know, if it looks like an employee and it feels like an employee, uh, if somebody's work, then it is an employee. If somebody's working in the same place every day, doing the same job for only one company, they're very uncomfortable about that being treated as a contract role. But other countries. U.S. notably would be more relaxed about that or less less aggressive in enforcing against those kind of arrangements. Interestingly, within the companies themselves, um, you get a lot of employee uh, sympathy. And employees will be saying, you know, this is unfair. Why is, particularly, again, if it's in that situation where the person's on site, why am I sitting at a desk next to somebody who has less good terms than I have? That's you know, a very kind of human and I think you know praiseworthy reaction that people have. So again, there has also been some employee activism saying, you know, if we're going to have contract staff, if our kitchens or catering or our transport or anything like that, any of these services are essentially run by the same people all of the time, and some are employees and some are contractors, that doesn't feel right. And so they're asking questions about that. So that's the litigation and the employment team. Mm. And there are lots of issues there that, that and, and you find the same mechanism, right? That the way that you do law uh, matters and matters for the reputation of the company. And there are, there are many different ways of doing law that are all legal, but not all of them are politically as uh, as uh, good uh, in yeah. terms of reputational concerns. Now, let's talk about one where, where it's really obvious and, and quite direct, and that is the team that deals with law enforcement requests. Yes. Uh, usually, if you're a large enough company, you will have a separate team that is specialized on figuring out how law enforcement access does. And these are some of the most fantastic lawyers I've worked with. They know the law in every single country. They understand exactly how the police is organized. They know what's required on the local law. This is, this is hard work. So how do they interact with policy? Yeah. So, so again, when it's working well, it's hand in glove. Because these are, I think, unusually, um, it's an area where there's a large element of judgment to be applied, as well as the law. So, so the baseline, you, you know, as a company, you receive a request from a law enforcement agency in Country X saying, please give me some data, I'm trying to catch a bad person. Um, and, you know, actually, I think for telecom companies, uh, traditional telephone companies, this is much more sort of mechanical, as in if the request is properly formed, it's a legitimate request to be the subscriber information. We want information about the person who has this mobile phone number. They'll get the request in. They'll just do one check. You know, Is it legally correct? And if it's legally correct, then they'll disclose the data. In, in internet companies where there's this content that's relevant and content is being requested or even subscriber information that's related to a particular um, thing that somebody has said on that platform, they'll often apply a second check. The first one is, is this legally well-formed? And you're right, they, they either themselves know or they'll actually, uh, most of the big companies employ uh, firms of outside counsel, which is the other phrase, which is a very American phrase, but when we need to uh, keep in mind outside counsel are, um, you know, these big global law firms, and they may hire one for the law enforcement team who have people in every country in the world or a relationship with people in every country in the world. So when you get your first request from Turkmenistan, you, you know, you probably don't know Turkmen law, but you can say to your law firm, like, is this properly formed in, in the context of Turkmen law? That's test number one. Then subsequent to that, in a tech company, your test would then be, is it consistent with our policy to disclose? 
uh, in those circumstances. And that's where a lot of judgment has to come in um, uh, about, you know, the nature of the disclosure, the nature of the regime to which you're disclosing, uh, um, the likely consequence of disclosure. And that's where legal and policy, I think, tend to work very, very closely together to see if they have a consistent view of um, essentially the human rights implications of disclosure for particular classes of requests in particular countries. And it's not always up to the team to actually make that determination. I think it's important to also mention that in many of these cases, it's so close to policy because what actually happens is that what kicks in is the diplomatic layer on top of, of the of the question. So you're asked by country X to give out certain data and country X has some kind of agreement with your home market and what then happens is you have to go for this agreement instead and the agreement will then decide whether or not this is this is handed out so if you're working with the law enforcement access request team they're usually very clued into for example the u.s state department right because you have some of these they're called this horrible acronym called mlat yes. mutual legal assistance treaty and there are some 60 or 70 of those with different countries and it's a lengthy diplomatic process that then tries the different legal systems against each other. So it's, it's not even the company that need, does that. It's something that is is hoisted into this diplomatic layer where there is going to be a discussion about what does the country you're in think about the country asking, right? That's right. Yeah, and, and we should be clear, I mean, in a sense, what law enforcement teams don't do is ever say definitively no. What they say is, you know, um, we're not going to disclose this to you directly, voluntarily, you must go through the formal process. And that's interpreted as a no, because the formal process, as Emma, you've talked about, is really difficult. And particularly if you're a human rights risk nation, you know, the, when we say the formal process, the formal process is ask the US government to order the company, if it's a US tech business, ask the US government to order the company to disclose the data. And of course, you know, we we can all think of a list of countries where that that ain't never going to happen. But you're you're not as the law enforcement team. The decision you're making is: can we legally and ethically make a disclosure directly to law enforcement in a particular country, or are we going to send them through the formal route, which is slow, painful, and may never produce a result? Um, and so for some countries in the world, the law enforcement teams are consistently saying, go through the formal, take it to the US government, go through that formal route. But other countries, they're actually disclosing in quite large numbers. You can see in their transparency reports, quite comfortably disclosing directly to the law enforcement uh, agencies, knowing that that disclosure is legal under US law, which is also a critical factor. And US law has some restrictions on uh, companies giving out data to what they perceive of as foreign governments. Is it legal under the law of the receiving country, and is it sort of moral and ethical? Um, again, as a reminder for those who who sort of may think, well, you should just always say no, always send off to the U.S. government. I, I didn't never felt that. I always felt that there were two ways in which uh, a company faced with law enforcement requests could threaten human rights. One, the obvious one, is to disclose data where that data will be taken by a government and used to harm the human rights of the citizen. But there's another scenario, which is that refusing to disclose data where the disclosure of the data would allow legitimate good law enforcement agents 
to prevent a human rights abuse. In other words, prevent them from arresting somebody who is going to cause harm that constitutes an infringement of people's human rights. And that's the judgment. It's a very hard judgment to make that both disclosing and refusing to disclose, I think, can be uh, unethical acts if done wrongly. And you're trying to you know, create a regime where your disclosures or your refusal to disclose are always the the human rights optimal decision that you can make in the particular set of circumstances and and the, i mean this is a team that lives very close to the action because they also have to make determinations on so-called emergency requests yes. where there is real clear and present danger to human lives for example and and so really important to understand what they're doing and figure out exactly how it works it's also a team that will will happily work hand in glove i think with the policy team to see if there's a better way to get those cross-border requests that are legitimate, that are sort of uh, often uh, just done, as you say, to prevent crime, to get those to work better. Because I think it's generally felt, all of the companies feel, I know, and I think most of the law enforcement access uh, organizations feel that the system we have in place is not fit for purpose in the internet age, right? Yes. It's one of those areas, again, where yes, we often, as policy team and law enforcement lawyers, go and meet government government people together and law enforcement people together because it is quite a political environment again um if you're not a conspiracy theorist you won't you won't see a problem with this but it's you've got people of goodwill on both sides there are people in the companies who who want the bad people who are committing you know very serious offenses to be caught and you've got law enforcement agents and people on the government side who are legitimately seeking to defend the interests of their citizens in most of these conversations there there are other people who are less ethical, but most of the ones I was involved in, that, that's the framing. The framing is good people trying to deal with genuine problems. And so they will sit down around a table. Um, and sometimes the government will wield the big stick and say, look, if you don't give us more voluntarily, we're going to change the law and force you to do it. Um, but more often than not, it was more a question of, look, how do we, how do we work with the legal regimes we've got? We don't want to do this illegally. We want it all to be clean and above board. But how do we do it in a way that is legal and doesn't stand in the way of a legitimate investigation? You know, law enforcement in a particular country have information that suggests that somebody is going to do something really serious and harmful and they need that data. How do we make all of that work? It is typically the kind of conversation you have and they say, Others are a little bit more difficult, um, but in all cases, there's a political and a legal element. It's not uh, it's not simple, not least because as we started this conversation, from a company point of view, you're typically saying we're not in your jurisdiction. So everything we do is voluntary in this context. Um, the government will be saying well, you absolutely are in our jurisdiction, so everything you do is mandatory, but no one wants to test that proposition. No one actually wants to go to court and really test that. Um, they'd rather you know, sort of work both taking the positions they take formally, but then trying to find some kind of modus operandi. And if you're a policy person, you will be working with the law enforcement access request people and the litigation folks to do something that's really important if it's not already done in your office, and that is to set up dawn raid trainings. Yes. Speak a little bit about what a dawn raid is. It sounds exciting, but it's really not, is it? Yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is where um, a, a, an agency of the state decides that there is information in your office uh, somewhere in the world that it is essential information for them to be able to uh, um, prosecute 
the company for some offence. And typically it's competition cases, but it could be tax cases, competition tax, things like that. They tend to be at the economic side, but it could, in theory, it could be anything where they think that on your premises there are documents and computers and things that contain the information they need and if they tipped you off if they you know they could just write you a letter and say send me send me all the information but their fear is if they tipped you off you would destroy the evidence therefore they must turn up unannounced and insist on you handing everything over there and then keep the staff in the office uh interview them uh and in some countries these are you know people with guns who turn up uh and uh, at your office door and say right we're we're kind of locking the door everyone's got to stay here um you mustn't destroy anything uh and there there is you know a lot of legal risk in that and again as you said that you have a lot of training um in order to be able to respond to this legally because what you're not trying to do as a legitimate company is cheat and so if the law says you have to hand over all of your computers. You'll hand them all over. Um, if the law says it's quite legitimate to cut off access to your corporate network and say no, then you'll do that. But you need to know which of those it is. You, what you don't want to do is cut off access to the corporate network and then find you've now just committed a criminal offence. Um, so you, you, the training is all around understanding how you should behave in those circumstances. Do you have a right to refuse to ask the question, answer questions, or do you have to answer the questions? Can you ask for a lawyer to be present or not? All of these things will be, you know, very specifically set out in the national law of the country where the raid is happening. And as a policy person, you're going to be one of the top three people who are supposed to be in the office during a raid and 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 handling the raid as it as it sort of progresses. So if there's not a lawyer present, for example, and there are not lawyers in all offices around the world, and there's a policy person, then the policy person is going to be on the hook to understand that one right problem. So that's a good thing for you to catch up on. Yes. Now, you mentioned tax, and we were re- we were certainly uh, omitting tax lawyers from yes. our list before, which is not good. So let's talk about tax lawyers. It seems to me that the problem you, you mentioned before of what's legal and what's sort of acceptable it comes to a comes to a point in tax law doesn't it yeah I mean, again i'll be very unfashionable and defend tax lawyers because the ones i've worked with i actually find are you know very ethical in uh, and serious about their work and their uh, their job and again, i think they it, it's sort of misinterpreted their job is to find the the most tax efficient structures for a company uh you know that's what they're paid to do i don't think they're paid to do things that are like super dodgy and stretching the law. And there are people who do that. And in, 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 in the UK, there are these schemes where people get prosecuted from time to time because they've signed up. And the scheme is has been sort of constructed entirely to kind of avoid and dodge personal taxation. It's, it's not my experience that that's what the corporate lawyers I've met are doing. Uh, they're, they're constructing structures that are entirely proper and quite straightforward actually in, in and quite standard i mean standard, it's not yeah. as if companies have brutally different models no. either right yeah and and if they're given different instruction they'll do different things so they're not again they're experts in it and if you say to them and i remember i'm sure you had that conversation where we would model doing different structures and say well from a policy point of view we're going in and saying i know this structure is legal but it's causing us a lot of policy problems. Uh, our perception, the reputation of the company is really, being really harmed. How about if we restructured to a different structure that would um, be, uh, you know, be better from a public perception point of view? And the tax lawyers will diligently work out what that would mean uh, from 
cost point of view, but also really importantly, whether or not that's legal. And again, there's a, there's a perception sometimes that you can, you know, just sort of move things around as you want. But there are some really important principles of tax law that I learned from our tax lawyers that would say things like, like if you're not, you know, if you if you're not generating the wealth in that country, so we get you get an aggressive country. Let's France is an example. France did dawn raids on tax on your company and my company, and France essentially wanted to say, look, more of the value that is being created by your company's products should be taxed in France. We believe that the value is being created in France. And so we would go to our tax laws and say, well, you know, it would make life a lot easier if we pay more tax in France. And the tax laws will say to you, it's all well and good, but I'm not sure we can defend that legally because by leaving more of the tax in France or saying the economic value is being created in France, we're cheating the American taxpayer or the American government if, as a matter of fact, the value is being created in America or being created somewhere else. And so they're actually, again, often the advice they're giving you is is to say, hey, policy person, you may think this looks and feels better, but it's not actually as legal as you think it is, given that when you take the whole global picture, there are these really important principles about taxation being paid where value is created and, and well-established principles of how you calculate where the value is being created, which isn't an arbitrary thing at all. And tax lawyers also have a, a supremely good understanding of who the money belongs to. So one of the problems, of course, is that mm-hmm. you feel you could pay a lot more tax, you could do it voluntarily, but what you're doing is that you're handing off your shareholders' money. And those are pension funds and other investors, etc. So the same moment you start paying va- tax voluntarily in a country, you can sort of add on. What you're doing is is that you're cheating the people who invested in your company. Um, and so the way they sort of lay this out, at least when we discussed it, I thought was fascinating and really quite eye-opening. It's also a peculiar job. If you're really, really good at what you're supposed to be doing, you might you might end up in deep trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a really hard job too. And I think you're right. I mean, these are, and then it's it's almost it's almost a, f- a failure of of public policy not to have been able to bring out more of the pure tax discussion into the into the open discussion and figure out how, if we believe tax should be paid differently, the levers look. How, how do we yes. construct it? How do we build it? Because I feel the debate is often is often sort of lacking that very technical element that I think there is plenty of competence around. Yes, and and then the tax lawyers have things to ask of us, which is, um, so I agree with you. I think it'd be great to sort of bring them out more, but it's, it's always challenging because they're talking in this technical way and you know that in a political context, they'll sort of, get crucified by the audience who will who will just not like the fact that they're you know defending a structure that is entirely legal but uh, feels wrong um but they have to defend it because that's their expertise um but they sort of that stuff of us because what, what they what tax lawyers really hate is double taxation where you're getting kind of hit in two different places basically for the same economic activity and and sadly because of politics is our failures <laughs> is often the case that you know, a government will come along and uh, it, because it's frustrated and we've failed to answer their frustration correctly, they'll pass a law which creates some kind of new taxation model. Um, we've had that recently. It's now hopefully getting wrapped up into this OECD new model. But there's been instances where individual countries have just come up with web taxes or web laws. Um, and I've certainly had tax lawyers frustrated that the policy people were not able to explain to the politicians why this was really bad and broke principles of international taxation, particularly around this double taxation thing that you're going after the same activity twice. 
Yes, again, so we're noting again that there are plenty of legal teams where partnering with them, understanding them and trying to learn from them is really important. But maybe there's one team that stands out in my mind, and that is the product council team, yes. the folks who are working with products. What, what does product council mean? And is, what, what does this, you know, where does this model come from? Yeah, so, so I think, I mean, uh, um, at its most basic, it is, you know, when you are a product-based organization, like most of the tech companies, you're putting out a bunch of different products, a search engine, a video site, a social networking site, a messaging site, and so on. As you're building those services, you want to know that they're legal, um, that you're not building something that investing like thousands of hours having people write code and then at the last minute you're going to get told well you can't actually deploy this uh, because it breaks the law in whichever countries uh, you're intending to deploy it so product council are there to be working with the product teams to make sure that whatever comes out of that pipeline is legal um, and i think it's it's evolved over time so i saw that the you know, you know from I, I guess in the early days it would have been an end of the the line thing people would have built products and then they would have you know done a quick check with legal before launching it um it moved from that to being something that was sort of fully integrated at every stage of the way which makes a lot more sense when you th say you think about the scale of some of these investments it's one of the areas actually i found where though you can get um some sort of tension between legal and policy in that when you're developing a new product let's take an example actually like uh encryption is one of the debates at the moment do you have end-to-end -end encryption on more products and the job of the product council would be to advise that team on whether or not it's legal to deploy end-to-end -end encryption and in most cases it will be they'll say look there are no laws against end-to-end -end encryption in the united kingdom for example therefore as product council i'm advising you you can build a product with end-to-end -end encryption Policy may be coming in and going, yeah, but if we build this, they're threatening to make it illegal. And therefore, you know, by building it, we'll trigger that. And therefore, we shouldn't build it. And so you've got a, a difference there sometimes between the legal team who are saying, what you're doing is okay, go ahead, because it's legal and they're right, they're correct. And the policy team saying, don't go ahead, you know, don't do this thing, because either two things, either. It may not be illegal now, but by doing it, you're going to make it illegal, and therefore you will have wasted your time because it'll be illegal by the time you get out there. Or sometimes there'll be a difference in interpretation. And I, I certainly saw this where the legal team will say, on paper, this is legal. And the policy team will say, it may be legal on paper, but the people in this country hate us so much, they'll find a friendly judge who will bend the law <laughs> and make the thing illegal. And my, my judgment as the policy person is, you know, that's going to happen. And that I've certainly seen that tension where the lawyer is saying, but it can't. The law, the law is based on facts, not opinions. Uh, um, I've looked at it and the, and the facts are this thing is legal. And you're saying, ah, you know, they're going to find a way to make it illegal. Uh, and a way to reinterpret the law to make it illegal. So again, that's a classic area where um, there's a risk for the policy team that they're the people who say no, uh, or the people who cry wolf, and and you end up in this unpleasant triangle where the product people who just want to build their thing are, are saying, you know, well, legal told me it's fine. Why are you policy people trying to get in the way and block it? And that, as you could imagine, is not a great conversation. Um, should be avoided where possible. 
and and so you should align with your product council colleagues where possible as well. I think one of the origin stories is quite interesting. Mm. The the use of the idea of product council or the term of product council uh, in one story at least can be traced back to Google's early days, 2004. And there is even an origin story written by uh, Alexander McGillivray and Nicole Wong, who I think were one of the some some of the first great product council, and indeed the people who sort of came up with the term when they were doing job um, announcements for for Google. And so. The idea was, I think, to find somebody who could a little bit bridge what you're describing, not just say it's legal or illegal mm. to launch this, but also be able to to say it is legal now. But if you follow the trend lines of legislation, you're likely to bend the arc towards making it legal if you launch it. So ideally, they would reach a little bit beyond the, the question of is it legal or illegal into the question of how will it actually affect the environment into which you launch your product. But that was always very hard. I had the same experience you did that some product council did this really well uh, others would recruit policy people to come be the bad cop in the meeting yeah. and sort of come say that yes you can you can certainly do this but um, you should book off may and possibly june for congressional hearings because that's where you're going to be if that happens yes. that kind of thing and and i think I, to, to a certain extent i think the division of roles actually also made sense because there are different core competencies understanding the legality of a product and how to design it in a way that complies with the law is, is really hard and it's a competence of its own. Then understanding how the product will affect not just the, the political space, but also how the political space then congeals into legislation, I think is, is another kind of competence. And so my, my experience was when it worked best, you were working hand in glove with Product Council and you had a joint recommendation on whether or not the product could launch in its current design, where you ended up being the bad cop. It was typically never that helpful because what then happened was just that you you were sort of you were the boy who cried wolf because yes. then you launched the product and nothing happened which is of course what will be probable for a number of cases uh, and and people would just go like oh those policy people they always you know they always cry wolf and so i i found that really interesting well, but i think I mean, in terms of legal roles, the product council role is one of the most challenging, but also one of the most helpful to the policy person. That's right. And it's also, I mean, there are human factors at play, um, which is that product council typically are literally sitting with the product teams. And, and I think they feel them very much in an enabling role. They're a group that, you know, they're a team that is trying to launch a product together, uh, very positive, get the thing out the door, particularly where the policy people are physically distant thousands of miles away in another jurisdiction and they're the ones raising the concerns saying you know i've got a problem with this in germany uh from germany doing this on a sort of one hour video call at an odd time of day just again that dynamic is something just to watch out for if we're giving advice of how do you get uh uh, how do you avoid that scenario where it feels like there's a, a sort of like a coherent team sitting there together working on the product and this awkward person over there who is not one of us who's kind of giving difficult advice because that advice may be really important but how do we find a way to to sort of build that in without it being awkward and, and part of that may be a series of meetings beforehand or briefing somebody who's physically sitting with the product team on the German concerns rather than necessarily having the person beam in from Germany, that may be a better way to get those concerns through. 
I, I think that's absolutely correct. And it's such a good observation because this notion that, it, you know, somebody who's sitting with a team and, and even if they're not suffering from Stockholm syndrome, uh, <laughs> they, they, they will be, they will be aligned with the team and their, their identity will be sort of formed in that team. They will have a very different view of something than someone whose identity again then is formed by their peers in a political context in a country, you know, half away across the world. And so, so, I mean, the policy folks also, of course, have their teams that they want to work with, where they want to make sure that there's no blow up or, and, and sometimes the, the reverse happens. So the policy team sort of becomes this, this, this team that, that almost admires the problem and says, oh, this is going to be so difficult and you yes. have to balance yourself. And, it, and it's so hard, but I think it's calibrating your work with product council is probably one of the most important things you can do. And some teams, some policy teams have even tried to solve it by making sure that there is a policy shadow for product council in the team at the headquarters where the product is being developed. So you develop product policy folks that are um, that then sort of perform a similar role. So if the product policy council says, you've now designed the product to be legal, the product policy person says, and we think it will be well received by the political space and that it will not change the legal environment for the worse. It, and what do you think? I mean, yeah. you obviously have to be quite a large company to do that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, again, just in terms of advice for policy people, it, it is one is, is to not forget that your job is to help get the product out there. <laughs> And so just it's like just psychologically, like don't get yourself into the mindset of being the person who, who kind of revels in the difficulties. Your job is to get the product out there. Your job is to understand the product. And again, another piece of advice, like oh yes, play with the product, important. play with them early. You know, you've got this opportunity, you're inside the company, you can get on and play with them. Don't wait for this fully finished product to come out and then go, Oh my god, that's terrible. Like you should be in there early using all of these internal beaters and things like that. And you should be curious enough to do that and then yeah figure out how to gain some respect from the product people uh um, it's easily lost i mean i've again seen it there there are um policy people who who do come in and go oh this stuff you know it's going to be a disaster it's going to be terrible and the product people just learn very quickly to switch off and not listen to that person and go around them frankly um so how do you gain that respect well you gain it by being interested in their work by by actually liking the products enjoying the products getting to know the products um if you see the product as this sort of you know bad thing that i've somehow got to sell that's not going to endear you to the person who's just spent you know months and months building this thing you've got to you've got to be much more respectful of the product than that so i say the advice is you know really take advantage of your privileged position inside a company to get to know products early um and ideally love them and show that love to the product managers and if you don't love most of the products your company's producing, you're probably in the wrong company. So that's quite an interesting thing. It's so true. It's so true. And I, I think I mean exactly right. And I think that the the point that you made in the beginning that you're actually there to help launch the the products also should inform the way you give advice. Your advice yeah. shouldn't be, oh, we can't launch this. Your advice should be, if we launch this, here are the mitigation uh, measures that I think we will take. But there is a probability that we will end up with this outcome. And that's a much better way of yeah. framing your advice than than saying, oh, it's all going to be terrible. It, but there is a little bit of there is a little bit of excitement in being the person who rings the alarm bell as well that you need to be careful not to succumb to because there's something there that's that's also very human that you want to be the person who who 
essentially makes sure that you avoid catastrophe. So yeah. there, I think it's it's such an I think the dynamic between product council and, and, and policy people is going to evolve the most in the coming decade as well, because it's very clear that more and more companies are now operating on the product council model, trying to figure out how to build this legal team that is deeply knowledgeable about products um, and, and can help make sure that you preempt legal problems uh, at the design stage rather than the launch stage. And in terms of the structural um, conversation we've had pr- previously, it can, it can play both ways. So one way is to say, look, if, if policy is also in legal, then both the product council and the policy people are rolling up to the general council, and therefore it's sort of easier to order uh, there to be a consistent message. That's one argument. The, the counter argument is to say, well, actually, it's better to have, as long as the advice is given well, the independent advice, and therefore better to have policy, public policy in a different structure, um, because you actually want this dynamic tension between public policy advice and legal advice. And so you can argue, you can construct a case to argue for both of those, but the reporting structure may make a difference, because I think it does make a difference there. If you're not in the legal system, you know, it, I mean, at a very basic level, if the product council is annoyed with you as the policy person uh, and you're in the same structure, the product council can just go to your manager, which may be their, sort of their manager, you're in the same management tree and kind of get, get them to sort you out. If you're in a different management structure, it's got to go up higher before it can come back down again. Um, so I say you can argue both, but um, if you want that independent, uh, robust sort of dialectic approach, you probably want them in different structures, um, but there are benefits in terms of coordination if you have them in the same structure. Uh, it's very true. And 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 um, a future date, we should talk about whether or not policy people should be lawyers. Yes. Um, I think that we should talk about different paths into policy work. But uh, I think I think we've sort of, there's tons left to cover. We haven't talked about the antitrust lawyers. We haven't talked yet so much about the commercial lawyers. Yeah, IP lawyers, but I, I think you're sort of getting, we're getting an idea here. What If you were to sum up the advice that we have for policy people when it comes to working with legal, you know, except beyond the sort of be collegial, be nice, you know, yeah. don't generally be, uh, I think the technical term is an asshat, but yes. really try to try to sort of be be someone who's collaborative. Beyond that, what, what, is the, what is the key thing that you would say, you know, what, focus on this? And yeah. all else will be well. I, I think it's most important to recognise that you have different you have different functions that you're you're not going to win. There isn't there isn't a kind of like I'm right and they're wrong here. They're right and I'm right. I'm right in the context of my world, which is to advise on how policymakers are going to react to particular things and to advise on what works and doesn't work with policymakers. And they're right to advise on the legal system and how the legal system is likely to respond to something. And don't try and sort of second guess each other. This can work in both directions, but from a policy point of view in particular, like, like don't, you know, recognize that the advice they're giving is good within the terms that they're giving it. Don't expect them always to agree with you because their terms of reference are different. So it's that recognizing that difference, I say, between comms and policy and legal, they all have complementary functions but but it, it's sort of instinctive. I think maybe particularly acute for policy people. Policy people want to win the argument. Well, no, <laughs> like you're not going to win the argument to be a better lawyer than the lawyers or a better comms person than the comms person. Um, they, uh, well, if you are winning, then and that's you know sort of you are dominating that way, then your company is really unbalanced, not functioning well. In a well functioning company, these functions give different advice. 
and the 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 end result, the end decisions you make are a sum of all that good advice. There's one, just one thought though, on a final thing that where I think the lawyers are wrong. Can I, if I inject one of those? Oh, is, sure. <laughs> and you must have this because we are policy people, and we mostly. Yeah, yeah. Are. yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm just going to contradict everything you said, but no, non-disclosure agreements. So you must have had this. Whenever anybody turns up at a tech company office, they make them sign a non-disclosure agreement, which is some long, garbly thing which says, if ever I uh, uh, leak anything that I learnt while I was on your premises, then you can send me to prison kind of thing. And, they, and they'll do it on paper, they'll do it on these iPads and things like this. And that used to cause me the most pain ever with visitors. The worst being when, and I'll, I'll actually name them, I had the Irish Data Protection Authority come to the office to formally inspect Expect us, and the instruction <laughs> was they must sign a non-disclosure. Uh, to which the the French Commission said, "Can I write these sort of um, whatever that? <laughs> you know, I am your regulator. Whatever I learn on the premises, I'm going to disclose. That's the whole point." <laughs> so, anyway, but to to there's uh, a um, then and then you would have I don't have this situation. I'd have people from civil society who say, "Look, I'm not signing any non-disclosure agreement." So we had to meet in cafes outside the offices and. You get all this sort of stuff. And there, again, that's one where I understand exactly where the lawyers are coming from, which is they're trying to protect the company. And, you know, there will have been experiences in the past where somebody came in and copied secret formulae down from the whiteboard and went off and created a rival company. Fine. Um, but this is a very kind of big stick to kind of deal with that problem. And, again, it's not to blame the front of office staff who have to do what they're told. But that's one where I'd love the lawyers to be a bit more creative and kind of go – yeah, these non-disclosure agreements, you know, unless it's kind of a business type meeting or certain within certain categories, they're more trouble than they're worth because they used to cause me endless pain. It's a very good rant and I, I wholeheartedly agree. Well done. So with <laughs> that, I, we're wrapping up this episode and um, on legal, I think it's a, it's a really interesting, it's an interesting relationship worth digging more into at some point. But uh, for now, we're wrapping it up and you can find the podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Brilliant. And we thank you for listening. Uh, you didn't have to sign an NDA in the beginning, and we hope that you'll be back with us in the next episode. Thank you so much. Bye.